Our scripture reading is Matthew 16, 13 through 23. When Jesus came to the region of um, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to, began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Sovereign Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you. It's from your hands uh, that you have given us uh, relationships. You have given us uh, items. You've given us homes, food, people that we care about and care about us. And God, you've given us the church and you promise from your word that the gates of hell will not overtake your church. And so, God, would you help us as followers of Jesus that we would just lean into the institution that you have set up in preparation for your kingdom, that we as disciples of Christ would be about what you lay before us. That, God, just over the past few weeks, we've been walking one step after another and seeing what it looks like to follow you as the Bible displays it. And so, God, would you continue now, to show us from your word, what does discipleship look like? What does it look like for us in this room to take following you seriously? God, would you bless us tonight as we sing, as we think on you, who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel, as well as what you call us into and why? God, would you bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you'll see kind of what I mean with uh, the various passages that we'll cover uh, in, in our conclusion to our, our series, Honest Discipleship, tonight. Uh, you'll remember we've been going through uh, different moments between Peter and Jesus, uh, looking for an honest look from the Bible of what discipleship looks like. Uh, more than any person could tell us, uh, we want to know straight from the source, what does following Jesus entail? We began this honest look at discipleship because, frankly, we don't want the fake stuff. We don't want to do what other people tell us we're supposed to do unless it is clearly presented from God's Word. We need to know what does following Jesus look like from the Bible. So we've focused on the biblical historical figure of Simon Peter, uh, the most well-known of the disciples of Jesus. 
And we've seen and heard about several moments between Peter and Jesus. And in that time, we have seen what the steps of honest discipleship look like. First, we count the cost. Jesus commands this of all his would-be disciples. Peter counted the cost repeatedly and with all but one instance. He counted it as more costly not to follow Jesus than to follow him with his whole life. Second, we follow Jesus. That entails confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Holy One of God, committing ourselves to him daily and staying curious about how his saving work and his teachings have influence over our lives. If counting the cost covers the long game mentality and following Jesus daily is the short game, what left is there to cover? It's the substance, the substance of one's life. Tonight, I hope to prepare us for the next step to live differently. That's our sermon title for tonight. So if you're keeping notes, and I hope you are, uh, our sermon title is Live Differently. And I hope for us to see that, uh, to start out in the Great Commission, what is uh, found for us in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. That's where we're going to start tonight. Uh, I want to read this as it is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture when it comes to our Christian purpose. As Jesus was on the mountain before his 11 disciples, one the one that betrayed him later hung himself, the 11 uh, disciples come to this mountain by Jesus' request he has been crucified and raised from the grave, and he has this one last word to give to his disciples before he ascends to the heavens. What does he say? Well, we find it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. What we call the Great Commission says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord God, would you speak to us now? to see yet again what discipleship means for us, that, Lord, we would take, uh, take it seriously, what you call us into. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start here so we can see that what we're about to read, an interaction between Peter and Jesus, is not unique to Peter. Um, it's something for all of us as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ, uh, we're going to see some pretty great things that Peter would go on to do in the name of Jesus, but it's not because of how great Peter is. Peter was just obedient to living out what Jesus called him to, calls all of us to. And it began for all the disciples right here on the mountaintop before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. 
In the Greek, in this passage, the Great Commission, there is one verb in these verses. If you know anything about the Greek language, you know that the verb carries all the weight of the sentence. It gives one, he gives one command, and it isn't go, and it isn't baptize, and it isn't teach. Those things are important, but they aren't the main concern of Jesus right here. He commands his disciples to make disciples. That's the verb. Make disciples. That's going to include going. It's going to include seeing people you shared the gospel with be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God. And it's going to include teaching them what Jesus expects of his followers, just like you have learned and are learning. Christian, you have a marvelous purpose, and it is to make disciples. And I know some of you, are not there yet. You have no idea what making disciples looks like yet. Be encouraged. Jesus didn't command this of his disciples until they had followed him, followed him for a few years. If you are new at being a Christian, I do not expect you to start making disciples right away. In fact, I think that you can possibly do more harm than good. You can go and share the gospel pretty soon after following Jesus. We see that much when he does send out the 12 to go share about the good news of the coming kingdom. So that you can do. But it takes time for the substance and quality of your life to show that you are someone worth following. This is why it is important for you to live differently. In order for us to live differently, we first have to love Jesus. Love Jesus. And we see this in Peter's conversation with the resurrected Jesus. We read the portion of the passage that led up to this conversation a few weeks ago, but if you'll turn over to John chapter 21 we will read the actual conversation. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19 say this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter had denied Jesus three times. Now Jesus asks him three times to reaffirm his love for him. And then he recommissions him. Do you love me more than these? He asked. Uh, This more than likely means, do you love me more than these other disciples do? It is no secret that the disciples often compared themselves to one another, often getting into competitions and debates about who was the greatest among them. I think Jesus is calling Peter out on his previous debates here. Do you really love me more than the other disciples do? Three times Jesus asked Peter this to the point of Peter being grieved by it. It must have really been uncomfortable for him, for Peter to have his dedication questioned like that. But it is common for Jesus to probe the hearts of his disciples, is it not? Has Jesus poked and prodded your heart? Has he tested you as if to ask, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Last week we talked about taking the step to follow Jesus, but we didn't mention the substance that motivates our following him. Sure, we have to know who Jesus is, and yes, that is important to value him for who he is, but more than that, we have to love who Jesus is. Do you find Jesus altogether lovely? I was reading just moments ago, Psalm 118. His faithful love endures forever. It repeats it all throughout that psalm. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. Do you find Jesus lovely? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Do you love Jesus? Seriously, you know me. Love is more than a feeling. It is a commitment Are you committed to Jesus as a response for what he has done for you in the gospel? God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins, all the matter of ways that you fall short of his glory. He died the death that you deserved, you and me both. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose from the grave to conquer that death so we could walk in the new life that he has for us. Do you love Jesus as a response for what he's done for you in his love? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? Some say that is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? Does your affection for Jesus ebb and flow based on the circumstances of your life? Or is it constant 
Do you love Jesus with everything you are and everything you have? If you do, I praise God for that because that enables you to follow Jesus even when things get difficult. And hey, they're going to get difficult. They did for Peter. It says in this passage that Jesus gives Peter a hint at how he will die. But he still, at the end of the passage, invites Peter to come and follow him. It reminds me of words that Diedrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. With every affirmation Peter gives that he loves Jesus, Jesus gives Peter a command. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so we see that the outcome of our love for Jesus is that we meet the needs of others. In living differently, we must love Jesus. And second, we must meet others' needs. Meet others others' needs. We see this in Peter's healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate and subsequent preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 3. So flip a few pages to your right of your Bible to Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 say this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms, that is money or gifts of those entering the temple. (laughs) Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, this is not a moment between Peter and Jesus. Jesus, by now, had ascended to heaven by this point. But it is a moment in which Jesus' name is mentioned by Peter. He says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter heals the lame man in the name of Jesus, invoking his power and his presence. This moment provides an example of an apostolic miracle That is a miracle achieved by a former disciple, that is student, now apostle, a teacher. 
Peter has turned a corner in his walk with Jesus. He can now reliably meet people's needs. And not only does he meet the man's physical needs, but every time you see a miracle in the Bible, what comes alongside it is a message. Peter leverages this moment at the temple to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all who were there that day. He didn't just aim to meet others' physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well, the greater need as I see it. He presents the gospel to his audience and invites them to repent of their sins, tells them about the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary and the resurrection of Jesus at the tomb. And then he says this in Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. We live live differently in this world. That's what repentance is. There is so much sin and brokenness all around us. To turn from that sin while so many others seek it out is unusual. It's unfashionable. Yet it is also refreshing. To love Christ and to make him known is a different life altogether. It takes the focus off of self and on the hurt of others. How can I meet someone else's needs and then leverage that to meet their greatest need, salvation from sin and eternal punishment? Peter was to be a fisher of men. Remember that first interaction we looked at on the boat? Jesus come, Peter comes face to face with who Jesus is and that he sees his spiritual bankruptcy. I am a sinner. And he puts his face among all the fish that he had just caught in the feet of Jesus. He sees Jesus for who he is and Jesus sees Peter for his marvelous potential. He says, you will be a fisher of men. And then that moment at the last breakfast on the shore, Again, surrounded by a bunch of fish. Jesus restores Peter to ministry. He says, you're going to shepherd my flock. You're going to tend to my sheep. He was given the task to care for other people. And we as Christians are supposed to do the same. We walk with our eyes wide open. We see the hurt and heartbreak of others. We may not have what they want because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They don't know what to want, but we have what they need and we have it plenty. Find a hurt and heal it. Find a need and meet it. Share the gospel with others and call them to repentance as Peter did. We must meet the needs of others. And then third, we must shine brightly. Shine brightly. 
we see Peter commend this to the persecuted and dispersed church in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, if you go and turn there in your Bibles. 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 and 10, 1 through 10. Again, this isn't a moment between Peter and Jesus. Rather, this is Peter leading the church, feeding the sheep as Jesus commanded him to. And Peter tells them to live differently because they are different. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 say this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't, do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is informing the church on what it looks like to live as the new people of God. Since Christians have been given new life by the word of God, they are to love one another and they are to long for God's word so that they will continue to grow in faith. And as the passage illustrates, we are to be like living stones which build up a spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone, the most important stone, the foundation stone. But then Peter gets to a place where he describes the people of God. And I love it so much, I'm going to read it again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Followers of Jesus are noticeably different. They are identifiable. They don't blend in. We are a chosen race. 
far above any skin color or ethnicity, we are identifiable in that we live as those who were chosen from the foundations of the world. We are a royal priesthood greater than any monarch that has ever existed on this earth because we are spiritual ambassadors for the kingdom of God. We are a holy nation far purer than America or her faded dreams that fall short of God's righteousness. We once lived in the dark crevices of this chaotic, deathly world, but no more. No more. We have been called out of that darkness into marvelous light, and so we must shine and shine brightly. As Jesus says from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do people know you to be a bright person? Better yet, do they know why you're a bright person? Or do you weigh people down with your despair? Self-pity is another form of pride. You want to feel sorry for yourself? Find your basket and go hide your light. You want to give glory to your Father who is in heaven in the midst of all your problems and your hardship? We will clear some space to put you on a stand so that everybody can see the glory of God revealed in the midst of your difficulties and your hardship. We as disciples of Christ must be people who shine brightly in the quality and the substance of our lives. When the night gets dark, we shine all the brighter. We live differently. So our main idea for tonight is this. We are to live differently by loving Jesus, meeting others' needs, and shining brightly for all to see. People will inevitably take notice of the difference in you. And they may even see it right away. But regardless, we live differently because we are different. A radical transformation has and is taking place within us. We are born-again believers in the Spirit. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are His honest disciples, not pretending like we have it all together because we don't. Instead, we admit that we don't have it all together and lean desperately upon His saving work and His teachings for how to live our lives. All authority has been given, given to me in heaven and on earth, He says. He has every right to tell you, Christian, how to live. So live differently 
we are his honest disciples. But what does this mean for our ministry? Let's put it all together. If this honest discipleship is counting the cost, following Jesus, and living differently, what does that mean for our ministry? Well, the young adults ministry, so long as I am your pastor, will always value people over programs. That's not a debate. But programs do offer us seasons of focused equipping. Some seasons are more intense than others. But they're always intertwined with meaningful relationships with other more mature followers of Christ. Some of those relationships will be more intimate than others. All our staff can do as the ministry is concerned is offer up those focused, equipping, and faithful people worth following. You have to decide how intense is your discipleship. You have to decide how invested you will be in your relationship with those who disciple you. Will you take off the mask and let someone see the real you so they can equip you for honest discipleship? I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the fake stuff. In this ministry, we are after the real life-on-life, iron-sharpening iron, make-me-more-like-Jesus week-after-week stuff. That's what we're about. And we do not apologize for that. Some lessons will be harder to learn than others. Some seasons will be harder than others. But nobody said that living differently was easy. Everything we do in this ministry, we do with a purpose. For instance, we offer YA worship as an opportunity for corporate discipleship. What does that mean? It's a lower level discipleship that everyone can benefit from and process rather easily. We offer life groups as an opportunity for small group discipleship. The bar is raised a bit higher. We expect some type of uh, contribution from every person in the life group, whether that's reading an article and talking about it, engaging with the teacher, or getting to know others in the class. Those are pretty low expectations, but they are still higher than what we do here at YA Worship. Then there is one-to-one discipleship, an eight-lesson commitment for new believers to learn the basics of Christianity with another follower of Christ. And then finally, there are accountability and discipleship groups, groups of about three to five people that get into the nitty-gritty of the Bible and each other's lives. This is a pretty intense form of discipleship. The expectations are high, but the reward is as well. You'll see the Bible really open up, and as you do, you will find that your life bears remarkable fruit from it. This is what we currently offer as a ministry, to facilitate discipleship as as much as we can. If you can do all of it, great. If you can't, believe me, I get it. I don't expect you to do all of that. Maybe you'd rather find one person who can mentor you personally. I don't know many faithful Christians who would devote that much time to one person, but if you can find them, follow them as they follow Christ. 
Bottom line, here's what Jesus expects of every person who calls himself a Christian. Jesus expects you to be discipled if you call yourself a Christian. I hope I've shown that much in the last three weeks of teaching this series. Jesus expects you to be discipled if you call yourself a Christian. You can't do nothing and expect yourself to grow. We are always being discipled by something, but if it isn't a follower of Christ equipped with God's word, you're being discipled away from the image of Christ. And you're being discipled by something other than the gospel that has the power to transform your life. Honest discipleship is counting the cost, following Jesus, and living differently. Anything less than this will be unacceptable. Indeed, one day we will all stand before the one we said we followed and have to give an account for whether or not we actually followed him. I've tried to give you an honest look at discipleship from the Bible. Will you be honest about your attempts at discipleship? Perhaps where you've been apathetic about it. Or perhaps where you've been distracted away from it. Would you consider of taking it more seriously and following Jesus with your whole life? Would you, yet again, count the cost, follow Jesus, and live differently?